Welcome to Get After It PDX, a down-to-earth podcast featuring honest conversations with inspiring people in the creative hotbed of Portland, Oregon. Recorded live and on location in Portland, let's welcome the co-founder of Y-East Wolfpack and the host of Get After It PDX, Willie McBride. Hey folks, a quick note before we get started. The Get After It PDX podcast is brought to you by the support of our friends at the Aimsure Distilling Company, a new distillery focused on bringing people together through great flavors and a warm environment. They love the way spirits taste, but more importantly, they love what they do. Spirits bring people together to make memories, build bridges, and crystallize the moment opening up in early 2020 in Northeast Portland. Welcome folks, we are back with another episode of Get After It PDX. This time we are doing a Get After It PDX and Beyond that we've done a few of now. So basically we are highlighting somebody who is coming from outside of Portland, Oregon and doing awesome things in other places. So today we have Len Nessifer, who is a professor founder of Natives Outdoors and a board member on the Honold Foundation. Welcome, Len. Yeah, awesome to be here, man. Cool, we are very lucky to have you. Psyched we got to nab some of your time as you came into town. Yeah. <laughs> Fun event last night. It was good. Yeah. I was, yeah, I'm super psyched to be back in Portland. It's like a special place for me. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Why is that? My, um, my, mo- uh, my aunt lives in Newport. So oh, cool. as a kid, we would transit through here a lot and spend oh, time and the cousin here. And yeah, it's a sweet town. Forest Park, great times. <laughs> great suffer fest. Hell yeah. Yeah, it's a good time, man. Yeah. So you are doing many, many things. Sounds like you're quite a busy person. Um, so yeah, like, we, like everyone, we always go back and get sort of the the creation story of Len Nessifer and how you got to be where you are today. Yeah. Let's, let's go back. Where were you born and raised? Um, I had, I grew up in, uh, part of my life on, uh, in Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas. My, there's a tribal college there that my parents met at. My dad was in the Peace Corps, um, in the seventies, one of the first cohorts and he came back and like was looking for a job Mm -hmm. and being a Peace Corps volunteer, he had preference for government hires and he ended up taking a job with the Bureau of Indian Affairs and so he um, there's a so that college that tribal college has been there since uh, the late late 1800s so my mom ended up uh, they ended up meeting there and so that's how I ended up randomly in Kansas <laughs> um, so you, that's where you were born yeah right? yeah born um, and then lived about 11 years of my life there huh. um, it was cool like Midwest is a funny place you know? <laughs> and like in retrospect being away from it you know um, but I then um, moved uh, to the Navajo Nation when I was about 11 or 12. Okay. And that was a really big change. Um, my mom's side of the family is from that part of the world. Um, and my dad's actually from Detroit. Um, so okay. auto workers and, yeah. you know, so it was, it was a funny... I, I've always kind of had this sort of, uh, uh, sort of translator role between the two sides of my family. Because you know the auto workers were really concerned, or not concerned, but con- uh, curious about my Navajo side of the family and vice versa, uh, and so I'd, uh, I would have to often like, t- you know, talk about it. It's just kind of a funny sort of role that I've inhabited of like kind of 
being the link. So the auto worker side was of a different tribe, or what? No, they're Romanian and Scottish. Okay. Yeah. So like. Oh, so your dad was Romanian and Scottish. <coughs> yeah. Okay. Totally. So it was always kind of this role I had of just being this link between these two very different worlds. Huh. So that is, I'm sure that's, that's <laughs> a curious role. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up there and spent time in Arizona, and then uh, I went to um, high school in New Mexico, um, which was great, and then ended up going back to Kansas for college. Um, and uh, yeah, I studied mechanical engineering. I did worked at did a little stint at NASA. <laughs> uh, right after grad, right after undergrad, it was good, but not my cup of tea. Um, I was really interested in energy issues and how they affected tribes, and so um, yeah, I, I and part of that was influenced by my uh, growing up on the Navajo Nation. We had, still have, um, thousands of uh, abandoned uranium mines from the Cold War. Okay. So my grandpa was a coal miner or a uranium miner and. Uh, he lost his left lung because of silicosis and so you know seeing like firsthand the impacts of energy development in my community it was pretty real so I ended up trying to figure out how I could change that policy so I went down the engineering route um, kind of learned that I didn't want to be an engineer (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah and then I've uh, since you know, went straight to grad school. I graduated in the recession, okay. so that was a that was a really interesting uh, transition. It was like, oh, third shift in a railroad depot in West Texas or grad school. Uh-uh. Let me choose my suffering. <laughs> so yeah, but so going back though, what yeah. what was the reason for that initial move from uh, like at age eleven to the oh, my parents. And it got divorced. Okay. But the, the, the challenge, uh, well, the, the, the choice that they gave me at that age is where I wanted to live. Okay. So they said, you know, live where you want to live and it's your choice. And it was, it felt... And your mom was going back there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so it felt like a pretty consequential choice. It's like, well, I have my friends here in Kansas and it's great, yeah. but also like this is a new experience. Huh. So, so where I, was it? Where were you actually living? Uh, in a town called Saley, Arizona. It's like right by Canyon Shea. Okay. It's a... Uh, kind of can't know not many people go to Canyon to because it's kind of you know the Grand Canyon the other big canyon in Arizona is there yeah, yeah. but uh, Canyon to is a national monument and it's uh, I don't know like a couple of 1500 foot deep sandstone yeah. canyon it's really sweet I've actually been there really yeah yeah back when I was young we went on a road trip and oh really yeah I actually went like horseback riding through the canyon oh yeah yeah, yeah totally <laughs> it's like a native run yeah horse operation yeah it was, it was pretty wild yeah, I grew up on one of the uh, northern, um, there's like five fingers of that canyon that kind of spread out. I was on one of the northern ones, like on, on the Saley, which was about 7,000, 7,500 feet above sea level, so okay. really high. Yeah. Um, so how, was that like a tiny town? Or? Uh, yeah, I, I always joke it's a small college town. <laughs> there's a tribal college there. Okay. Um, but it's probably, when students aren't there, aren't there it's probably like 1,500 people. Huh. And so what was life like then? Or like, what were you into? Were you, did you get out in the outdoors? Obviously, mm-hmm. outdoor recreation is a big part of your life now. Was yeah, um, I ran a lot when I was there. Uh, that was definitely the, the uh, most accessible thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just kind of would venture around and like run around out there. Um, uh, I also did uh, some, like I guess, early forms of bike packing. I realized in retrospect that's what I was doing 
Um, but I would ride my mountain bike through that area, and then um, I actually rode it down into the canyon a couple of times, which I found out that I wasn't supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I would. I mean, a lot of just uh, yeah, just sticking around and going to school. Um, it was great. Uh, I never. I actually didn't climb or do skiing or anything like that when I was there. So. But yeah, Sealy is a really wonderful little town. Sweet. And so it sounds like you're, you took your studies pretty seriously. Yeah. Or at least maybe you were just naturally gifted. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like you, you rose through the academic ranks, so to speak. Yeah, I, I actually struggled quite a bit with school, like really? growing up, yeah. I was just like sick of it, bored of it, you know, just like... Was it was often the thing like in elementary school? I was challenged, and I would just kind of then start acting out. And, you know, typical. Uh, I flunked. Uh, I flunked my first algebra class in in middle school, um, and then like had a real rough time in undergrad. I did well enough to get into grad school, but once I got to grad school, that's where it was a little different because um, I was choosing my own courses, choosing what I wanted to study, and that felt different. And I think better, I, I would assume. Yeah, way better. And yeah. like my GPA was like the highest it's ever been. Okay, and like, nice. you know, it was different. Yeah. And I'm glad for that because I think one of the things that I learned in that process is like, oh, I can actually teach myself. I could be my yeah. own educator and yeah, teach yeah. myself how to do things. Sweet. And that felt really empowering. And then, uh, yeah, so I went to, got my doctorate at Carnegie Mellon. Um, in a program called Engineering and Public Policy. Okay. So we did energy and environmental policy, and uh, it's great. I mean, we had folks that were on the uh, science advisory board for the EPA, or you know, folks that had been political appointees in different administrations as professors, and yeah. they were talk, you know, walking us through policy. It was really cool. Wow. Really cool stuff. And again, this was sort of ins not inspired, but part of your interest in that, those topics were how they affected different <laughs> communities and yeah. as you'd experienced yourself. Yeah, I mean, my I mean, my sort of first-hand experience living on Navajo Nation, we had the uranium mines, but then the other thing we had was coal mines and coal power plants, and uh, the community that my grandparents lived in, um, Shiprock, um, I think it's gotten a lot better, but when I was a kid, there would be a, every winter there would be a big inversion that would form over the town, and would, you can see the coal power plant see the smoke coming out of it and then like rises about a hundred feet and then just stops and it's just like ground level pollution and um, my grandfather who was um, um, you know had respiratory issues like every winter was, it was this constant thing of being concerned of like oh he might get bron or he might get pneumonia again or uh, you know these uh, real concerns yeah and he ended up taking his life uh, when I was a sophomore in college and I think that's um I kind of, um, having dealt with that in my own family and like seeing and realizing that I wasn't the only one in my community that this was happening to. There's a whole generation of Navajo men mainly that um, died from mining, uranium mining. There's a big congressional settlement and all this other stuff. But um, I just, from that experience, it's like I don't want that to happen to have another community go through that again. Because yeah. it was it's hard. I mean, it's hard like realizing that like uh, a lot of these things in learning in grad school a lot of these things were preventable but the reason why they didn't happen was because you're cutting costs <laughs> safety equipment is a cost so 
Uh, it was it was kind of sobering, but also realizing like how easy it could be fixed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I ended up going to grad school, and um, uh, I, uh, you know, I had I had no I kind of had this idea I'd be working in Washington, which I did for a little bit, um, which was fun, um, but I. I mentioned last night, um, but I was working at the Department of Energy, and um, I was in D.C. for a bit for that, and then and then moved out to Denver, um, uh, where our office was at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, which is awesome. It's right in Golden. Um, but you know, elections have consequences, and like we were uh, there in the 2016 election, and it was kind of a you know, went from being a great job to being pretty miserable um, <laughs> within the course of six months. Um, so I ended up leaving um, in large part because it just didn't feel like, uh, you know, we got kind of our wings clipped. So we were doing a lot of direct work in communities in Alaska and across the West. And um, basically our all, all travel got frozen across the Department of Energy. So we're just sitting in the office twiddling our thumbs like, you know, getting a fat paycheck but like that's not worth it to me at the end of the day um so i ended up leaving um and that's kind of when i started natives outdoors was uh, about six months before i quit um and it just looked like a really it was one of those things that i saw the opportunity and it's like if i put time into this this could actually go somewhere um and it did and it has and it's been awesome um so what did you what was the opportunity you saw like why what was the idea behind it? Uh, well, part of it was, you know, doing, I personally, like I started skiing, I learned, like, learned how to, I taught myself how to ski. Um, but, you know, I didn't really see other native folks out there. It just kind of was like, oh, we go to these, you know, out in the mountains and there's like no native people anywhere. And so this is when you're living in Denver, Denver you started yeah. skiing? Yeah, I started yeah. skiing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, it was kind of this, I felt it was t- two opportunities. One, it was like, okay, this these sports are awesome. They're really fun, mountain sports, getting outdoors. Um, but in some ways, they're not normalized in our communities. Like, they're kind of seen as what? Well, in the native communities. In the native communities. Oh, that's what white people do. And I was like, yeah, but, like, there's native people doing it. So, not true. Um, but kind of c- confronting some of those in our communities. But then the other... Um, I think the other component was just uh, just increasing the visibility of Native people in these spaces because one of the things I'm learning is um, there's some crushers out there, man. Like, <laughs> just people doing some um, uh, really good stuff. Um, and I wanted to create a platform for folks like that to be able okay. to, like, plug in and then um, tap into more opportunities in the outdoor space. And so, obviously, like you're saying that part of this whole thing is that it's a representation issues mm-hmm. so I would assume like when you got into skiing or before when you were younger mm-hmm. you didn't see like depicted in advertisements or Mm-mm. outdoor magazines there's no one showing native athletes right yeah, yeah totally I was I was kind of you know I loved I uh, when I was a kid my parents got a subscription to National Geographic and it would always be those like you know, really iconic 8,000 meter peaks. And mm-hmm. I remember a couple of issues of when it was like that. And I just, I would glom, like glom onto those and just be so into it. It's like, I want to do that. I want to do that. And I remember seeing, uh, um, I think it was uh, Conrad Anchor, 
uh, in like Antarctica and I was like oh I want to do that he's like hanging on a portal edge somewhere and, <laughs> um, and yeah and so for a while I didn't really know what the path was to get there because no one in my community climbed no one in my community skied um, my parents had done it here and there but we never you know living in Kansas you really can't do either of those things um, so that you were as a child you saw those images and mm-hmm. wanted Mm-hmm. But so it took. It was years later that you actually started climbing. Totally. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I I've been climbing for about f- four or five years now. Um, oh, it, wow. So it was a long time before that. Yeah. You totally. Had that spark at least. Yeah, and you know, part of the part of the part of the thing about climbing and skiing specifically, like those are things I really am into now. Um, the in my community, we have a pretty fraught relationship with those user groups. Um, one. Uh, with skiing, uh, we have a sacred mountain that basically one of the ski resort there is using pretty lightly treated sewage to make artificial snow. And it's a sacred mountain. You're sp- effectively spraying shit water all over the mountain. Which mountain is that again? Um, Humphreys Peak in Arizona. It's like yeah, right next to Flags up, yeah. Huh. So that's been a controversy, and so you know that's been a real big sore point. And I, you know, I I basically grew up seeing photos of uh, protesters like clashing with police over this and it just at Humphreys at Humphreys wow. yeah and Snowball and so I was kind of had this idea in my mind of like oh that sport doesn't accept who I am or know what I'm doing or you know the people that are doing it and I just um, kind of yeah lost interest because of that the other and then with climbing um, in my in my where my family's from Shiprock um, that uh, climbing got banned on the Navajo Nation in the 70s um, because there was you know, a combination of political factors but um, the, the tribe kind of saw climbing of these monu- or these monoliths as sacrilege and uh, I, yeah my grandparents <laughs> like my uncles would get so upset um, about uh, people coming on the res and climbing so I kind of grew up with like those narratives in my head about that's what those sports are and that's yeah. where people do it and then I eventually what ended up happening is I um, I just started discovering it on my own just like I, in being in Denver um, the mountains are awesome it's like if you're you know it's it, it, having lived on the east coast in the midwest for a long time I'm like I'm going to spend as much time as I can in the mountains um, and really prioritize that but as I started getting out there I started seeing oh like this is actually a useful skill for these are useful skills for getting through the mountains efficiently um, you know even if the objective is a bit contrived <laughs> um, so I, I started I started seeing it as like an opportunity to teach myself but also just to um, suck at something yeah. like because it's really hard as an adult to like learn something from scratch and you're just having to yeah. be an idiot out on the slopes or whatever it's humbling it really is yeah so that's that's kind of how you know I, I started getting into those uh, sports and like I was often the only one out there that I was native or so I, so I thought and um, so I started the Instagram account just to share, just to begin to normalize the conversation about outdoor sports in our communities because I saw kind of what it did for me in a big way in the um, sort of, um, I mean, I don't know, it's, it feels pretty empowering to be able to go through some pretty gnarly terrains, you know, it, it, feels, it feels like there's some sort of magic power in that. <laughs> um, 
and I just thought I, I kept thinking you know one of the I kept thinking back to one of the things that my um, grandparents would tell me is that you know it's like when you're out there you need to know what you're doing when you're out in the mountains yeah. you can't just be dicking around you have to be smart yeah. you have to be uh, aware and I think that felt like um, despite some of their objections about the things that I was doing it felt like I was kind of fulfilling what they had told me to do mm-hmm. but I was actually going to ask that did you get any were there any negative sentiments from your community or family about you doing the no I, I I don't think so because I, I kind of explained to them it was something that I was into and I you know I explained it as is like knowing how to be on these environments is something we've always done it's just like these are these are just really useful tools yeah. more efficient tools to do it with yeah. Um, and yeah it was I mean there was some of that though from not my family. Um, you know, folks questioning what I was doing and like um, whether it was because of skepticism of those user groups already. It, totally, it's like, oh, climbers are this and that, or disrespectful. Why are you yeah. becoming a climber? Exactly. Yeah. It's like I was adopting those value sets and, and learning the sport, which is not <laughs> not the case. Um, and that still is a that still is a real um, uh, tension. Like climbers and tribes do not get along, generally speaking. Well, I feel like there's other things tied to that, like wildlife stuff, like peregrine falcon totally. nesting, and like yeah. if climbers disrespect one thing, or, you know, they. I feel like climbers get the uh, get known of being disrespectful, whether it's to mm-hmm. Native American groups or whether it's to animal. Yeah. <laughs> it's like climbers sort of have that ego sometimes of like whatever but yeah then again that's generalizing a, a, you know, it's a huge group of people it's changing yeah. I'm seeing it change in a big way and it's uh, I just you know one of the things that brought me into climbing caring about it it was bear tears because um, one of the things that this was one of the first times that tribes and climbers worked together um, on the protection of an area you know arguably the largest national monument that we will have once it gets to the courts um, but you know having the five tribes had to deal with their stuff and like differences and like come together and um, that took a lot of work but one of the interesting things that happened was that uh, in when this monument was being sketched up there was a I believe a CU professor or CU Boulder professor named Charles Wilkinson that um, really well respected by the tribes but knew um, this man named Brady Robinson who's actually Conrad Anker's contemporary um, did a few of the big stuff that you know big mountain climbs in the Himalayas and stuff and he was running this group called the Access Fund which um, years earlier had sued a tribe or sued the Forest Service because of um, a tribe's uh, concern that climbing was impacting this rock near Lake Tahoe it turned into this big thing and so the climbers are suing the tribe you know, it was a really, it was a big, it was a big shit show. And Brady stepped in after that transition. Um, you know, one just uh, had the perspective of like, we can't, we can't be assholes to the tribes. This is just not a winning. It doesn't look good on us. And it's just like not a good thing to do, given the history. So Charles, you know, reached out to Brady, and you know, they had many conversations and. 
Um, Charles actually set up some of the first meetings between tribes and climbers around Bears Ears. And what ended up happening is that one, it was they had built shared values around how to protect this place, but um, the other was um, uh, that the climbers ended up becoming sort of the proxy for the entire outdoor industry mm. in that monument designation. And it was, I think, from the outside, I was like, wow, like climbers and tribes working together collectively on this. It was. Kind of having that background and then that then then seeing what was happening there it was mind-blowing just to see how far things you know can come um so i kind of saw it as an opportunity one to like sort of the the, the wedge was already there of like yeah. that opening but like then jumping into it and sort of opening it more and yeah. um so we've been doing a lot of work and um uh we just had a piece come out in climbing magazine this past month about Cochise Stronghold um, and so one of the things that we're trying to do is telling indigenous stories about the land through the lens of climbing mm -hmm. and so one of our athletes Aaron is a um, you know, 514 five climber he's a serious climber mm -hmm. um, but we we documented his sort of return to Cochise and telling the story about the Shirakawa Apache there and um, yeah I think the, the thing that we saw from Bears Ears is that it was like this blending of two stories, mm -hmm. but that bring you know that intersection. There's just an immense and an ample amount of opportunity for storytelling. Sweet. So yeah, it's kind of a. It's exciting. Yeah, so like that kind of you know that coming back from where like where my grandparents were telling me that you know knowing how these landscapes operate, but the other thing that they told me was this like landscapes have stories, like treat it like a library. Yeah. And so we've been, you know, I've been kind of drawing on those two things to like do our work and looking at landscapes as a way to educate. Um, um, so yeah, it's been it's really fun. Um, so let's yeah. talk more about that evolution. So first it was just basically Instagram. Yeah. So you were highlighting native athletes. Yeah. And then, so then it just sort of slowly started taking on more and more scope. Yeah. So we we saw like you know there's a big there's still a big conversation around cultural appropriation, um, you know, native designs on clothing. And, you know, for me, I was like I I saw a lot of rightfully there was a lot of native folks that were angry about it. it kind of like continues this history of dispossession, um, but. I saw it as an opportunity because it's like shit. Like people like these designs. Like why don't we? We can tap into that. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, there's a reason people like them. Yeah. They look cool. Exactly. <laughs> and, and the other the other thing is that I think we we're is I saw like there's an opportunity to um, tap into. So we couldn't do this work if we were just doing like other sorts of a, selling apparel, for example. So we so we venture, started venturing venturing into selling. Um, product and part of that was to generate revenue to do some of the projects that we're doing, but the other was to provide an example and a test case of if if cultural appropriation is not I would say if it's going to happen, but like here's here's one alternative to this sort of practice is working with native designers um, and making sure that the designs have meaning, um, they don't lose their meaning, but that the benefit then also goes to the community that they come from. Um, the other component has been to um, sort of push the needle a bit on what people think about indigenous designs, because often what I'm seeing is like, oh, you have, you know, we as Navajos get pigeonholed to like the rug design and the geometric things that come out of that. And 
I think, you know, um, looking back historically, like rug designs, like the designs that we have were contemporary designs for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think anything, we can basically create new designs and new ideas of thinking about culture um, um, for our own communities, but also broadly. And just sort of breaking these myths that like native people are not contemporary, something on the past, or like we're stuck on the res, or you know, these sort of things that kind of confine us is just breaking free of that. And so we're doing that through product, um, you know, we're doing that through our Instagram story stuff, and um, then we've sort of started branching out into doing media, because that just seemed like the next, you know, we have the product, of course, but then we're sort of doing photography, and we're like, oh, well, these are great places, and there's great opportunities, let's like tell the story. Um, so I, my like sort people of, can hire you to do photography, or we have we have folks that can we can outsource to. So yes. we know uh, uh, there's a native woman named Tara Kirshner that's actually made a movie called Sladies, which is about these women climbers. I've heard of that. Yeah, that's a native woman that she was the director okay, well. and the filmer. Yeah, nice. and she's making Sladies too. It's interesting, but she's you know big wall Yosemite climber, and yeah. she's capable and talented. Um, uh, Connor, we're teaching him how to t do photography. He's our ski athlete. Okay. Um, but yeah, we're just trying to like build the capacity within our communities to do this sort of work. Um, because like most tribes live in incredibly scenic areas, right? And so, um, you know, we're trying to build that capacity for these communities, but also just um, really trying to like shift the give a different perspective in outdoor media in, in the narrative. And so I've done a few pieces for The Alpinist. Um, that was actually my first sort of foray into um, storytelling. And uh, yeah, I wrote this like 7,000 word piece. It was great. Wow. That's a beautiful <laughs> magazine. Yeah, it was great. And it was also kind of targeting the sort of stories and audience that we wanted to get into, which was, you know, telling the stories of landscapes. And, you know, mountain landscapes are pretty dramatic it's hard to argue with like you know a 7,000 meter peak or whatever um, so yeah it just it slowly evolved from you know that Instagram to doing product which we still do we still do Instagram and all that stuff but to doing um, larger bigger budget projects and yeah we're just having fun eventually the reach is just growing because you can get yeah get a lot of audience through a movie as opposed mm -hmm. to a piece of product totally but so how are you, is just the sales of apparel funding these media projects? It's um, consulting, uh, we do some consulting with the outdoor industry around tribes, so yeah. um, there are some instances, like Patagonia has been one of our clients, mm -hmm. and um, you know, they give environmental grants, and so a lot of those environmental grants like intersect with tribes, uh -huh. right? Or they're tribal recipients, and it's like, how do you, how do you, um, you know what are like so one of the things that we've been doing like drawing upon my experience in government is like how do you work with the tribe in a way that like builds a solid and solid foundation of relationship and um because at the end of the day you know one of my concerns is i don't want like there's enough alignment and values and like shared values that we can't have things blow up uh because of miscommunications or easily avoidable Situations. So we've been doing a lot of consulting with the grantees, with Patagonia, and like um, uh, that's been great. And that's kind of been a big source of our revenue. Um, we do the product, of course, um, which is another source. Um, and then just the media and storytelling and filmmaking has been the third. So 
um, our athletes kind of plug in in different places in there. So Aaron, you know, great example. He's our climber. Um, he's we did like a shoot for Red Bull Media, and like that was that was a source of revenue. Then the next day, like he's writing a piece for uh, a magazine, and then like the other. Then recently, I've been working with him on doing some work with the state of Colorado on their Parks and Wildlife program. So it's kind of like one of the things that we're trying to do with our athletes is also um, giving them the opportunities to be good at sport, but also be a good advocate. Because yeah. we think that that platform with the advocacy is just a great match. And so it's pr must be a combination, but these are some pretty big media sources. Um, is that just that you're all connected, or does it show that there's a... Uh, Clearly, there's some real interest in telling these stories yeah. from outside, you know, people outside of yourself. Yeah, I think we had to make the case for it. Like, definitely, um, yeah, it was kind of saying, where's our, where's our niche? Like, how can we, um, you know, where's the gap? And, like, the gap is, like, a lot of, like, around, because of Bears Ears, because of Arctic Refuge, people want to know about Indigenous people, mm -hmm. generally. Like, we get really shitty education about native people in this country <laughs> um, and you know the more time the more time people spend outdoors it becomes like there's a lot of unanswered questions and things that begin to like not mesh very well with like the history we learn and and so in searching for that information it's like well here like we can learn it we can sort of rectify and begin to tell the actual history of what occurred through the lens of these sports and um some of it's positive, some of it's really hard. Um, but, you know, I think we're seeing it as an opportunity that, you know, it's interesting. Um, and it's kind of tapping into, I don't want to say the zeitgeist, but it's like we're uh, sort of tapping into something deeper that mm -hmm. people are, are um, feeling when they're outdoors. Um, one of the things that I'm seeing, in my opinion, is that the more times people spend outdoors, there's more of a convergence towards the values of the indigenous people that live there and then the people that are out there sports and begin to care about these places and I think like that's great like totally let's like build on that because yeah. we have to like take care of these places together um, but yeah and then the well connectedness it's kind of like you know having worked in um, Indian country before like tr and with tribes and that it's like a very small <laughs> you know like the it's a very small world um, and uh, so you know it's like kind of navigating the politics and like how do you get connected and you know working in dc was great a great experience of great sure. experience of learning how to network and like get your name out there but in the outdoor space like um yeah i just had a, a few folks that were just like early allies and then provided a lot of important connections and um you know we just try to do good work yeah. and that's i in my opinion that's why we've gotten so far is just we really hold ourselves to a high standard with the things that we do and don't half-ass shit <laughs> yeah, nice. um, and uh, yeah it's been great just to yeah I get to know folks and get connected and with, yeah folks that I idolize for a long time it's been kind of surreal <laughs> it's, uh, it's inspiring yeah so you referenced the election <laughs> totally <laughs> of course you changed things a lot and should provided a shift away from the yeah. your work at the Department of Energy do you feel like that event, <laughs> that shift uh, politically and within this country, has helped at all in terms of um, 
well, obviously, yeah, like people believe it. In some ways, it's helped sort of mobilize, mm-hmm. bring people together in certain ways, and get people a little more active and caring about things and mm-hmm. being engaged with the process. Um, but in terms of sort of like interest in diversifying outdoor sports and outdoor recreation, do mm-hmm. you think that, that those movements have been helped at all by that? I think so. Yeah. I don't think some people disagree with me on that, but it's, you know, one of the things is it, it's created a, uh, I think it's, for me, when Trump got elected, it wasn't a surprise at all. Like, yeah. I, I I have enough family in Michigan to know, like, <laughs> the, the real, like, the politics racially and, you know, the political politics as well, but it, it was not a surprise, but I think um, I saw it as kind of, it, it's bringing back the fact that we haven't addressed a lot of the hard parts of our history in this country you know and that for some folks it's like are willing to go there and other folks it's not and like also take a different view on um you know how this country was founded and uh and and so yeah i mean basically that's kind of where i think the conversation around race was like of course that had to happen um but yeah and diversifying the outdoor spaces like um I think um, we've been kind of, we, we've been riding sort of that wave in the industry around that. There's been a lot of like sort of work to like make the outdoors more inclusive and um, yeah, but I, I, I think for native, on the native side, like, you know, Bears Ears getting rescinded, like actually created an opportunity um, to, for us to build connections and alliances with folks that normally we wouldn't. Um, Cool. That's sort of the running world got into that one too. Mm-hmm. So, what is the current? Just while we're on the topic, what is the current status of Bears Ears? It's just tied up in the courts. Okay. Yeah. So the tribes are trying to slow walk it and like get it delayed, 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 with the hope that when a new administration comes in, it'll get just right. yeah put back to its original exactly boundaries. Um, so that's where it's at now. Um, there's some. Um, work being done to uh, like uh, create a new management plan for the I believe the original monument boundaries that the tribes proposed which was almost two million acres so it's it would be I think 30 20 30 percent bigger than what was designated by Obama so (laughs) the hope would be like when when it comes back it would be bigger Let's yeah. hope. Yeah, let's hope. It's a really cool part of the world. Yeah. So, uh, you mentioned you're also on the board of the Honold Foundation. Yeah. What is that all about? <laughs> yeah, that's Alex Honold. Uh, yeah, the ropeless climber guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Alex. Um, it, so, uh, I'll talk about how it started and then how I came into it but the Alex um, you know has he's a very well read guy um, reads a lot really cares about justice equity and you know parts of the world that are underserved or have been impacted by colonialism or whatever it may be and, and so in his travels like he kind of saw the work that he's doing as inherently self-serving and um, sort of selfish and so like he wanted to make sure that he had a way that he was giving back so he's given quite a bit of his salary for the past I don't know few years like many years and put it into um, this thing called the foundation the Honol Foundation and it's simple like our mission is um, promoting solar energy for a more equitable world solar yeah. solar okay so uh, he 
saw like how impactful deploying solar energy would be in communities across the world. It like can help um, uh, basically reduce costs of energy in some of these places in the world that either don't have it or it's really high. And um, so, you know, I, I talked a little bit. I worked in the Department of Energy. I had worked with tribes. I had done this sort of work. So I had that experience. And when I left DOE, I was like, hell no, I'm not going to work in that anymore. <laughs> I'm like, I'm done. Um, uh, and uh, what ended up happening was um, I met the executive director, Dory Trimble, at an OR show. And I was just telling her, I forgot exactly who introduced us. I think I just, no, um, a friend of, we have some mutual friends in Salt Lake, um, and one of which uh, we did this Alpinist piece with, so Proskier and Brody Levin and a few, Caroline Gleick and a few others, so did some things with them. And, um, she was looking for board members and they had dropped my name, and so we met at OR and like talked about my work in Alaska and talked about how I'd worked with solar energy before, and she said, this is great, we need, we need board members with this experience. And, um, you know, Dory's ED, and then like at that time it was Mari Birdwell and Al Tonald who were on the board, and then I got brought on, um, and then we slowly started bringing on more people. So we're at um, like six now, um, and uh, so we've been um, riding the coattails of Alex's success and like bringing in a lot of money, which has been good because we're 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 putting out um, grants to communities to do solar installs. Um, and we've been focusing in the Americas for the past year. So we did a re we're doing a really cool project in Puerto Rico, um, uh, uh, with this place called Casa Pueblo, which is like a, it's basically like sort of this community center um, that during the last hurricane they were one of the few places that had power because they had solar. Um, and so we're working with this um, electric comp company called Rivian, and we're going to be doing some of these like. Um, uh, grid, uh, sort of islanded, uh, distributed solar generation places across Puerto Rico, uh, and, the, and the hope there is that you know when the next hurricane comes, it's not like these all these communities are going to lose power for a year. Like there will be one place that will have it, and um, so we're funding that. Um, we're also working with um, this group called Grid Alternatives, and they're a nonprofit out of California, actually right in the backyard of where Alex grew up in Sacramento. But they do um, solar installs in um, generally economically disadvantaged communities. And when I was at DOE, we worked with them a lot in tribal communities. There's a, there's a specific cutout for grid tribal. And so um, we're, we've given, um, we're giving money to them um, to do installs in communities. And it's great because they also train people how to install them in the community, mm -hmm. right? So it's just, nice. yeah, one, yeah. two. And, um, so yeah, we funded them. We're actually committed to funding them for three years, which is you know unrestricted funds for three years. It's like we trust what you're doing. Here's some money. It's been great um, for them. It's really exciting to work with them. And then the last one that we worked on recently was in um, Detroit, and this one was really close to home because it was right like kind of in the neighborhood where my grandparents lived, probably about a few blocks away. Um, but you know, the, some of the community members there in Detroit are paying like two or three hundred bucks a month for electricity, or um, it, it's just crazy, you know. And, and you think about like some of these folks are already not making much money to begin with. Like this can really like change their lives in a really impactful way. So um, there is this woman named Reverend Reverend Ross that um, 
operates this nonprofit in Detroit that does all kinds of cool stuff. Um, you know, a lot of community development work. And, and over the summer, uh, we they did a install, I believe, on ten houses in Detroit. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a massive um, improvement in quality of life for those communities. So yeah, it's been a, a really great. Um, I would say blend of the outdoor side of mm -hmm. things and then um, sort of my experience in energy. It just kind of was like that sweet spot. I didn't think yeah, I would, I would awesome. find that. Yeah. <laughs> sweet. So what, sort of how much of your time do you allocate for, for that work, like the Honnold Foundation? Um, it's here and there. I definitely, uh, I plug in um, and like provide assistance to the ED where needed. Um, yeah, I don't. It, it varies. I mean, yeah, but it's uh, we're we're kind of ramping up a few other projects, and um, you know, one of the one of the things that we're really trying to do is keeping the organization lean so we can maximize the amount of money going out to communities. Um, and I mean, we've been able to do that. It's been really cool. Really yeah, cool. yeah. What uh, what does the adventure calendar hold for you next? We're going into winter. Yeah. Ski seasons. That coming close yeah I haven't um, uh, I was actually just talking with a friend of mine about doing there's actually two Apache tribes one in New Mexico and one in Arizona that own ski resorts that own ski resorts yeah oh, wow. on tribal land which is mm -hmm. I I knew about and you know one of them is like a three four hours from Tucson um, so I'm looking at potentially doing a story there. I don't know what it would be, but I just I'm curious if there's like Apache snowboarders or you know I'm sure there are. Um, there was a there was a really cool um, store um, film that was in Mountain Film this year um, called a, oh, I forgot what it was called. It was about Apache skateboarders. Oh, cool! And it was a really cool, really cool community and story. And so. You know, for us, the Apaches and now, like the Apaches are our cousins as Navajos. Like we okay. share a similar language, and um, so potentially doing a story there. Um, maybe going to Cedar Breaks National Monument if it snows enough, mm -hmm. and just skiing through that, which will be if you, oh. you can look it up online. But basically, it's these like kind of um, you know desert hoodoo towers and uh -huh. all bright orange, and it, when there's enough snow, you can actually ski through them. It's really wild. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's uh -huh. wild. Um, that sounds awesome. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I'm still, I still have to figure out that. It's kind of like right now, it's kind of the um, time of year where everyone's starting to think about that and put ideas together. Yeah, so yeah. we'll see. Because we'll so most of your adventures you want to do t related to media projects. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the way in which it, I can offset the cost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> pay for these fun things. Yeah. Um... One of the big things that we're doing this year is we're teaching one of our, our, our um, a few of our athletes how to do snow sports. Okay. Um, so we've we've been getting them into avalanche classes and um, you know teaching them how to ski, getting them ski passes and stuff like that. And that's been you know one of the things that we want to do is kind of break into that industry a little bit, but also just um, um, help normalize it and just like this is. You know, skiing can be expensive, but it doesn't have to be. Um, uh, uh, Especially if you start ski touring and going back. Totally, yeah. 
and, and you know backcountry it's like that's a whole like that's a whole skill set of like you know skinning and like how to deal with skis going over <laughs> yeah more to learn yeah sure. but it's been good um so we're doing that um we probably let's see what we'll have um i'm sure there'll be something in alaska this year at some point i don't know if that's going to be climbing or more something about a story about uh, traditional hunting and fishing up there well, so we'll see and how many athletes do you have total we have uh, I would say four core athletes like folks that are doing st- or five um, and then we have a graphics designer yeah. Vernon who's this like talented crack climber I found out <laughs> uh, he likes hurting his body in Indian Creek uh, <laughs> But yeah, we and then um, yeah, and then we yeah, basically five folks. So it's been a really tight core group of folks. But we're starting to like put out feelers and start looking at like mountain bikers and some other athletes to bring on. Um, then you have ambassadors as well. No, we we call our ambassadors athletes. Okay. So um, generally, what we ask is someone be good at their sport, and then also like be willing to either be good at the advocacy or be willing to learn how to do that. Cool. That's when we bring people on, and that always that isn't always a good fit. But mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the things that we're seen as important is um, that in this space, it's important that people be able to like articulate, advocate for issues, and um, be able to talk about these things yeah. in a public setting. It's good for all arounders. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you can't just be good at the sport. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, so do you, what are sort of the biggest hurdles you've experienced? Like, you know, do you, do you experience that certain things are harder for you because of being native or? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I would assume so. Yeah. Given the world and the society. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. um, I, I think for quite a while, like, people were either treating us as charity cases or, like, not taking us seriously. You know, like. I was like, oh, I like, you know, just didn't really, um, with the climbing and skiing stuff, I was like, oh, that's cute, you want to go do that, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, I'm going to ski off a fucking mountain, like, <laughs> that's, that's what we want to do. Um, but, <laughs> you know, but that was, I, I think that was kind of dealing with that sort of, uh, some of the stereotypes of, that people have of Native people, not everyone, but it's like very regionally specific, but, you know, I grew up, um, uh, uh, I well, I mean, sort of the sense is that oh, like native people aren't strong enough. We have too many issues, and, um, and you know, there's there's things that a lot of native folks have to deal with that other communities don't, and it's brutal stuff, right? And I don't think like I think for me, part of that was uh, part of the hurdle was not being defined by some of those struggles, but like. Um, but using it to basically say, like, in spite of these challenges, like, we're still doing these really great things. And also just providing the role models for our communities that we, like, for me, like, growing up and looking at those National Geographics, I wish I had. Okay. You know, I, um, when Jimmy Chin came on this scene, I was like, oh, finally, someone that, like, kind of looks like me is doing the stuff I want to do. Um, mm-hmm. But I know for a lot of young Native folks out there, like, that's, that's a big challenge. And so we're... Um, you know, trying to break that mold that, you know, we're, we can be doing these really great things outside and we can sort of create these role models for our community. Do you get that feedback? Do you, like, 
uh, from the young the young people? Um, yeah, I mean, like indirectly. Seeing you indirectly, yeah. So like, I teach a I teach a class right now that has a bunch of native students, and we do um, we're talking about like environment, like indigenous history and like landscapes. And I showed them uh, the ski film that we watched last night, mm-hmm. and it blew their mind. You know, they had never seen anything like that. Like none of them like are outdoor media consumers. Yeah, yeah. Um, huh. And. It blew their mind, you know. It's like an incredibly beautiful mountain that's like a part of our ancestral homelands, and we're skiing off of it, and it's like insane. You know, it's that was beautiful. It, the it, shots are awesome. Yeah, it was an amazing mountain, and I think like that's one of the things I'm seeing is like the story, the indigenous stories of landscapes is be- are beautiful, and the places are also beautiful too. So if you can combine that visual imagery with the stories, mm. it's like a winning combination. Um, so, you know, for those students, you know, they saw that and they're like, wow, like, how do I learn how to ski? I was like, exactly, I got you. <laughs> so, yeah, set that up. It's yeah. um, exciting. But it's just, you know, living a healthy lifestyle and, like, you know, you spend enough time climbing mountains, you'll get into shape really quick. <laughs> yeah. It's true, you just got to start, start doing it. <coughs> so, we're already uh, getting slightly low on time. Right on. Um, Obviously, lots more to talk about. We'll have to snag some more of your time when you're back in town. Uh, we're going to ask you the question that we ask everyone to sort of wrap it up is, so part of the reason you're featured on this podcast is because you're doing awesome things and you've, um, you know, through an evolution in your life, have found really meaningful work that's super important and you're affecting people's lives and all this. So a lot of people don't have jobs that are as gratifying or mm-hmm. satisfying so what would you what sort of advice would you give to somebody who's maybe trying to find that path or trying to find what is, is mm. meaningful to them I think this actually got phrased to me a couple weeks ago and I was like that's how I've lived. that kind of summarized how I've made decisions in my life but um, the biggest I kind of always say the biggest decision that you have to make in your life is what your values are and also the decision to live by your values in your life that's the biggest decision you'll ever have to make if you make it and um, in deciding that test for me was basically leaving that well paying job at the Department of Energy Mm -hmm. great job, great benefits you know, great, um, but also it wasn't fulfilling me and so I had to basically say is this lining up with my values and the things that I care about and I said no and um you know, that decision to leave was scary, but I also knew that the next thing that I would be going into would fulfill me. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the other is, um, not like I've, uh, like learning to be uncomfortable is an important skill. Uncomfortable in the sense of like learn being in a place of not knowing or like not knowing how to do something mm-hmm. is an uncomfortable space. But that's like learning is generally an uncomfortable space. Um, and so being comfortable with that or like learning how to manage that and work through that is a really important um, piece. Um, learning how to be uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, learning how to like be the noob, you know. Uh, starting from scratch or you know figuring it out asking questions um, and the other is I I really think is is just building community like that's something that I really care about is 
having a very intentional community of folks that are I, surrounding myself with folks that are doing the things that I want to do. Um, and that takes work. That takes time. But, um, you know, once there's that sort of social support network, it makes it a lot easier to either make a transition or sort of take things in the direction that I wanted to take them. Nice. Yeah. And I, I'm sure you would agree that that's sort of one of the benefits of doing different outdoor sports and mm -hmm. such is that it forces you to be uncomfortable at times. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Mountains are not your friend generally. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, for us in, as Navajos, like mountains in like the outdoor space, like we always refer to them as our first classroom. So, you know, in re realizing it's like the classroom it can be something where you're learning how your body works or like how to deal with adrenaline or stress or, you know, like, or how to manage it. Um, and you know, running has been a great tool for that for me, especially outside, because it just allows me the space to, like, decompress, but also just, like, learn how to be present and take things in, and, like, that's, that's a classroom of, I don't know, emotional regulation. <laughs> <laughs> we like this expression, comfort with discomfort. Yeah, totally. So it's sort of the same idea of, like, yeah, I think, like, being outside at all is, is beneficial, mm -hmm. especially being outside in all different sorts of weather and when it's hot and when right. it's cold and when it's raining and when it's snowing it's like because those are all uncomfortable in different ways mm -hmm. dealing with those things but the more you can just sort of make peace with that those uncomfortable feelings the better, better yeah. it will be it really is um, yeah I think that would be the big takeaway <laughs> cool cool well thank you so much I really appreciate your time and the work you're doing yeah, I appreciate it. Keep rocking it with Natives Outdoors. Thanks, Looking man. For, for more inspiring media to come. Right. <laughs> Us hucking ourselves off cliffs. Exactly. There Great. we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Have a good one. This wraps up another edition of the Get After It PDX podcast. For more information about today's guest, including social media links, please check out the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening. Now it's your turn to get out there and get after it.